Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Felicity Plunkett, author of Vanishing Point. Welcome, Felicity. Hi, Maggie. Now, as regular listeners will know, I interviewed John Banville last month and just before we went on air, I couldn't resist telling him about your poem, Discipline, which I'd certainly be the first time I interview. Um, could I get you to open the show by reading that to us? Yes, thanks. I'd love to. Discipline. John Banville, the fifth beetle, pesto, cake or freon. Anyway, we talked. And when we didn't, days felt long. John Banville with his longer oeuvre, my compensation. Burnt CDs. Unknotting reef and clove knot. Rolling hitch the verbal voice scoutery of your ever-casual emails, these, and when not these, the things we'd said, the glance you gave, the way you leant back in the lift one day, and with that, all my floor leant into you, and I was thrown, my skinned knees anchors. Oh, stupid girl, how much of this could be misprison, mispoints, mise-en-scene, but missing with its flies and crumbs drags on. Mm. Size and crumbs are, they're a little like flakes, those bits and pieces that come across as inconsequential, but they aren't. Yes, I became quite obsessed with the flake um, during the course of this book. Um, And the book is structured around the idea of flakes. And one of those ideas that once I had the idea, which seems a really quite strange idea, but once I realized that everything, you know, the, the, the important things start from the tiniest flakes and little things that look like insignificant flakes can be the the start of really important things. And they can also be about the way things break down and end. Once I started to think about this idea, it was extraordinary. Everywhere I looked, there were quotations about flakes. And there's another another one of the poems starts with a quotation from from one of John Banfield's novels, Athena, which is about the flakes of identity sort of falling away from somebody. And everywhere I looked, the whole world seemed to be made of flakes. Um, some state of madness you get into, I think. Well, I suppose that you could think of flake as an atom as well, couldn't you? Yes, very much so. Um, and, you know, because I was looking at, I, I started to look at, I guess, sort of theme, biographical kind of themes of birth and death and the conjunction of those things. But then I started to, I guess, work outwards to think about creativity and destruction as forces. Um, and that led me um, to think about this fascinating character, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the invention of the, the atom bomb and the sort of all the creativity involved in what became such a destructive thing. So, yeah, just trying to explore some of those sort of paradoxes. Mm. And I suppose when you think of some of the, I mean, the atom bomb itself, you know, being the splitting of the atom and also the way it reduces everything to flakes. You, you can almost yeah. imagine that as the, out, you know, the outcome of destruction. Yes, um, and, and, and then paradoxically at the same time, the outcome of all of this kind of brilliance and creativity of these people. Um, you know, just the fact that they were so focused on this goal and that as soon as it happened, they could see exactly what you say, that it was just reducing everything uh, to flakes. Mm. Now, one of the things I really loved, and it struck me immediately when I opened the book, was this conjunction between um, Shiva, the, the Hindu destroyer, and sitting Shiva. Mm. So just talk to me a bit about that wordplay, because it's, it's 
such an unusual, I mean, they're obviously the same word when you look at them on the page, and it's such an unusual conjunction. Yeah, um, I mean, I got to it by, by listening to a recording. There's a, there's a wonderful recording, it's um, so fairly widely available on YouTube, of Robert Oppenheimer much later as an old man talking about being asked in an interview how he felt when the bomb went off. Um, and, and, you know, how, how extraordinary that a man of his um, kind of, you know, very, very sort of mixed cultural background but should end up um, at that moment with a line from the Bhagavad Gita in his head um, that's famously, um, he says, he quotes, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Um, and so he's talking about this, this idea of Shiva. Um, and I thought, you know, how extraordinary for this, this Jewish um, physicist who has had the, has wrestled with kind of issues of, you know, belief and, and what to believe in and creativity and destruction and sort of broadly speaking something that you might call God, um, well, he was a very eccentric kind of thinker, um, and that this idea of Shiva in the end becomes becomes the idea, and yet you know he is kind of also motivated by this sense of what's happening to the Jews in the war, this sense of being part of the destruction, this, you know the terrible destruction of his family, if you like, um, and being apart from that and all of that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, in the end he goes through this kind of mourning, so I couldn't help thinking about you know, the ritual. Of uh, sitting Shiva and you know and mourning mm. and healing maybe too. Yes, um, and and I guess also the ritual, the idea of ritual around mourning being something that um, it's something that tends to me to have fallen away, if you like, flaked away. Um, I, I became very interested in the fact that there, there used to be a lot more rituals, and, and a lot of other cultures do have rituals around both birth and death. And yet now there seems to be a very prevalent idea that the best thing that you can do as someone who's given birth or someone who is grieving is to get back to normal. You know, how long will it take you to get back to normal, whether it's get get your body back to normal after having a baby or, you know, be a normal person after grieving? Um, I think that's a really strange kind of uh, phenomenon. Yes, and I think one that certainly one that is explored in the book, isn't it? Yeah, I was trying to sort of probe it, um, you know, from from different sort of angles. Uh, not in any not in any kind of logical or scientific way, but it was just one of those concerns that, that kept coming up. And and the birth and death and they're sort of sometimes they're explored simultaneously, aren't they? Yes, and that that came about because um, I was I was very fortunate to have a, an emerging writers grant from the literature board when I started to write the book. Um, and at that stage, I'd had my first child, and of course, uh, like everyone who's had their first child, every writer who's had their first child, I was very interested in. Um, exploring that, um, that was sort of the, the topic. Um, but during that period, two other things, during the period of writing the book, two, two other things happened. One was that um, my daughter was conceived, um, and so then I was writing the book with morning sickness and all the rest of it. Um, but the other one was that my father became very ill with cancer and eventually died two days before my daughter was born. So, you know, that kind of, that sort of juxtaposition, I guess, in life does uh, fairly obviously make you think about just the, the differences and the similarities between, I guess, the child in utero um, who might be imagined as coming towards life um, and then the person who is, I guess, relinquishing life 
um, so I had a sort of, I guess, a biographical kind of focus on that. But then it made me want to think more about what it meant to come towards life or what it means to go away from life and, and how we imagine all of those sorts of things. Mm. And, and probably even the genetic connection too between you know the father who was leaving and the child who was coming. Yeah, and I became very interested because around um, conception and pregnancy, there's a great deal of talk about the body and um, what the body's doing and what the cells are doing and what's you know everything that's happening with that um, the child in utero. And of course, there's a lot of discussion about that with somebody who's dying. You know exactly what's happening to the different organs in their body and what sort of treatments are being offered and so on. So um, I guess that started also a kind of connection, thinking about the body and. Uh, which is, which is one that I started to work on in the book, but I'm, I'm working on a lot more now too. Oh, I'll ask you a bit more about that later. Yeah. Um, now, Discipline Itself, the poem that you read, it's just a little softer, I find, and maybe one of the more intimate poems in the collection. Did you find yourself toggling back between that, you know, that intimacy and the broader, grander, sort of Robert, Robert Oppenheimer Shiva scheme? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I suppose I, I tend to. Um, I mean, that that poem is is obviously a bit more playful, and there's the kind of um, quality of self laceration in that one is is a bit more what I like to do. I like to be a bit of humour in poems, um, and I'm surprised. I was surprised that I ended up writing about Robert Oppenheimer um, and things like that. And I think that you know any one of us can think about all of those larger questions. Um, and I've, I've certainly joked when I've been reading from the book at various times that, you know, I started off thinking I'll just write about a couple of a couple of themes, you know, birth, death, and some of the things that happen in between. But I mean, a lot of our lives. I mean, I suppose um, the, the, a quality of um, looking at oneself and thinking about, you know, well, just just how important is your perspective? Um, just how all-encompassing could your perspective possibly be? And I think that might be quite a healthy antidote um, when you're writing about some of those larger themes. If that makes any sense. Yes, yes, it does. Um, now, you, you have been writing, before you, you wrote Vanishing Point, you've been writing poetry and non-fiction critical essays for rather a long time. Um, yeah. How did the specific full-length collection of Vanishing Point come together? Oh, well, that was just an incredibly fortunate um, accident of space um, in that I had been living in Armidale, in, um, which is in rural New South Wales, um, teaching at the university there. And then um, we moved up to Queensland, where um, the Queensland government has an absolutely wonderful prize um, that was put in place. They had a minister for the arts a few years ago, a guy called Matt Foley, who is absolutely passionate about poetry, which is, um, I'm sure he's quite a rarity as a politician. Anyway, he um, initiated various prizes and awards and so on for poets, one of which is the Arts Queensland Thomas Shapcott Prize, which is run by the University of Queensland Press. Um, and that's a prize for an unpublished manuscript. Um, and I believe they get quite a nice stack of manuscripts every year. Um, and so for the last um, six or seven years, there's, there's been a prize. And part of the, the um, prize for the free unpublished manuscript is being published with UQP, which of course is a really wonderful leap ahead for any poet for a debut, debut volume. But the volumes that have come out have been, um, a lot of them have been very, very successful. Um, for example, um, Jaya Savage won in um, I think it was 2004 with his collection Latecomers, um, which went on to win um, a number of quite major awards, um, and that's been true with a couple of the others too. So um, 
look, that was just incredibly fortunate. I just I'm really still pinching myself that, that I won that prize. Um, my thinking about that as a writer was that it can be really good to have a goal or a deadline. And my thinking was, I'll get the manuscript together and submit it. And that the discipline of doing that will mean that I then have a manuscript that I can go on to submit to other publishers. That was my thinking. <laughs> it was obviously a little bit um, less ambitious than it should have been. Um, but I'm really conscious of the fact that a lot of good poets are submitting um, to that award um, and, and no prize is any kind of certainty, of course. So, so I was absolutely bowled over mm. when I won it. That's wonderful. Mm. And tell me a bit about the mentorship that you had at Verona with Dorothy Porter. Did you have that after winning the Shapcott Prize or was it before? No, I had that quite a long time before, actually. Um, because I was working full-time as a university teacher, um, I found that I, I really had a bit of a struggle finding time to write. Um, and paradoxically, I guess in my case, it was when I had children and began to reevaluate where my time and energy was going that, that I, I suppose, I, I made more time for writing and rearranged things in my life. Um, but back in those days, I had a manuscript that really was one of those manuscripts that I guess many of us might put together, which is poems that I've written that have been published in one place or another but didn't really hang together as a collection. Um, but I submitted that manuscript to a competition and a number of poets, um, three or four poets, went up to um, the Varuna Writers' Centre in the Blue Mountains and worked with Dorothy Porter who um, at that time um, and, and beyond of course was very much um, one of Australia's most successful um, and, and readable and, and wonderful poets. And she was just an extraordinary mentor. Her passion for poetry was just limitless. Um, and it's wonderful to be able to talk to somebody who will be able to say, who will be able to refer you to half a dozen other poets that you haven't necessarily read. Um, and just, just somebody who also was very fearless in saying about a particular line, look, this really doesn't work, or what on earth is going on in this stanza. Um, I, I've been teaching um, poetry at the University of Queensland and one of the things I say to my students when we're talking about workshopping is that the comment that I really don't like to hear when we're going around the group and making comments, the comment that annoys me most is when students say, I really liked it, full stop. Um, and I guess one of the things about Dorothy was that she was fearless and, um, and, and generous um, in pointing out what didn't work and what could be changed which I think is, is really quite an art and quite a rare thing. So I was very, very fortunate, but I did, in the end, get rid of most of that manuscript and start from scratch. And there's hardly anything at Vanishing Point that was in that original manuscript, just one or two poems. Mm. Which, which two poems? What, would you read them to us? Or read one of the two? Ah, yes. Uh, um, I'll just have to um, think about that for a second. Could you put it um, <laughs> No, I can I can do that. Um, just to, I had a, had an old one called um, Dissolve Eviction, which I which started started out as sonnets. I've got a bit of a fascination for the sonnet form, um, but probably for messing up the sonnet form more than anything else, for taking it pulling it apart and putting it back together in a strange way. Um, but there's a suite there that I remember working on with Dorothy's help and encouragement, um, and it had in long lines and. Um, much more of a narrative poem and in the end it got reduced and reduced down to something that's much more sort of image driven in three sections. So shall I read that one? Yes please. Mm -hmm. So this, the suite is called Dissolve Eviction uh, and the first poem is Dissolve Shot. Salt water applied to wounds a guarantee of closure 
It might sting, but if you're smart, you'll do it anyway. Infection can't virgin, unfurling itself in your veins, stopped like some pillar, some lover, the body lost in salt. Salt water appears subject to transformation, parches the attempting tongue, breeds salt, factory of the lacrimose. But the sea is bigger than that, impervious. Escape has a charge. She can't afford it. Her small cliff turnstiled by the sea. Dragging the lake. Trawling. Something left behind. Checking locks at night. Unraveling like etymology. Knitted girl. The lake's bed volutinous, swaying with erotic intent. Edition. Old love letters block key. The portmanteau prohibitive. In the end, why keep broken promises if not to cuff at hope? In boxed photos, she finds self-effacement, apparitions of girls and women plattered into biography's mythic chords. Through the maze of inner city, without prophesying speed bumps, dead ends, chicaneries, pleasures, the dream ripens into a body song. Her right foot is sure and heavy. Um, yes, and I think um, what I could see myself in that one, that I just had to cut away and cut away. There was so much excess in the poem and that Dorothy was just a fantastic mentor for encouraging that sort of... Um, I mean, her, her work is just so brilliant for its spareness, but the way every word kind of radiates possibility yes. is quite extraordinary, I think. It certainly makes me think of your phrase, which I've committed to memory, soft laceration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, I do sometimes feel impatient when poetry doesn't show um, a sense of self-exclusion, self you know, in, in any other way than the sort of... It's, I, I don't know, I find some poetry can be very, very self-regarding or self, you know, self-important perhaps or perhaps takes itself too seriously and I find I can be sometimes not as compelled by that kind of poetry as I am by something that has a bit of wit or uh, self-ironising going on. Yes, uh, I suppose in, in your case, you really have to work both sides of the chair, don't you? Um, from, from author to publisher um, and, and so on. Yes, and I think that those, those can be very interesting things. I mean, most of us, I guess, most writers, um, for practical reasons, and, and for various other reasons, end up taking on a number of those roles. Um, and I, I tend to argue um, when I'm talking with my students again that, that that can be very fruitful. It can be really fruitful to practice, for example, as an editor um, and then to apply that to your own work. Although I find it's not the same. I can, I can work very much better with somebody else's manuscript sometimes. I can get outside it much more easily than I can with my own. Um, but I think it's, it's quite good to be able to sort of work those different uh, angles. Yes. Do you find that you have to kind of separate it so that when you're actually in the process of writing, you kind of have to turn the editor off? Yes, I think it might be one of the reasons why it took me such a very long time to go from um, publishing my first poems as a, as a young undergraduate student um, to finally having a manuscript that I thought was okay to submit somewhere. Um, I think maybe um, for those of us who, who train in the um, in the critical discipline? Um, maybe there can sometimes be too much self-criticism. But on the other hand, um, a lot of stuff probably gets published that that could do with a bit more 
mm. criticism. I don't know. Well, the, uh, Julian Barnes once said that uh, you know he he actually writes in pen and ink, uh, maybe quill too, <laughs> or a very nasty old typewriter because it just uh, our editing our writing tools these days are so professional looking that everything yeah. looks so good before it yeah. actually is good. Yes, that's such an interesting trap, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and things things can look very polished and finished. Um, and again, when I'm teaching, and I suppose I suppose thinking about these different roles, teaching really has been the dominant thing that I've done, um, and it's probably the thing that I I spend most commission. In fact, um, and I I thought I'd say to my students um, that yes, you know they they can get they can be very reluctant to change anything, and I think perhaps one of the hardest things to learn as a writer, or one of the things that I found hardest was getting to a certain point with something and thinking, oh, that's pretty good. If I start pulling it apart, I might knock it up altogether, so maybe it's safer just to leave it. Um, but of course, you know, the beauty of the word process, it turns you can have all sorts of drafts and play around with things and cut and paste, um, and that, that can be very fruitful too. Yes, yes, I suppose so. And I guess not to be precious about really great phrases and words. Yes. Yeah, um, I can remember very early on somebody reading a poem of mine, and I was quite devastated by the fact that he said, Oh, there are a couple of good phrases in there, <laughs> um, and you know I was much more precious about it. But, but later on, I realised that yes, if you can find, you know, in something a couple of phrases that might come out and seed something else, um, you know, that might that's actually really productive. Yes. Now, um, I, I was quite interested to hear about how you were stimulated by your, you know, having a child to want to do more creative writing. Um, mm. I think that that's the. Lovely paradox. <laughs> Having children increases the desire, but uh, doesn't necessarily increase the, the, the time. The opportunities. <laughs> yes, right. Do, do you find, you know, that you and you've got a bit of big editing job as well as editor at University of Queensland Press? Do you sometimes struggle between that, you know, the the I guess the urgent need of teaching and um, and you know being an editor and looking after the children, and then still managing to find time to do that creative, poetic type work? Yes, um, and I mean, um, I'm sure, and and I'm, I'm sure you have the same thing. Just trying to, you know, look at at where your energies are going and thinking about how you adjust that. Um, and I find that easier now that I no longer have a single full-time salaried position, um, because when I when I did have that, that really had to be, I guess, that had to be the priority. Um, and I did feel, and, and I, ha- I mean, I was absolutely passionate about being an academic, and I'd worked so hard at that, and I'd kind of gone into it young, and um, you know, risen to a reasonable height at a, at a young age, and so on. And to, to kind of make the decision to resign from a tenured position was quite a significant, painful, challenging decision. Um, but it's one that I don't regret in the least. Um, because I think that to have all of the various different components of work means does make it a bit easier to say, right, I've just got to do a bit more of this and a bit less of that. Um, so I kind of I like I guess I like to have the, a bit more control over and a bit more creativity involved in how I organise my time. Having said that, there are times like the school holidays where you know I can just feel really frustrated that I'm not getting anything other than parenting my children, and I just have to remind myself that um, that that actually is. Not only is it is it an important thing, but it is also quite productive of um, for me, quite productive as a writer in some ways. Inspiring, I suppose. Yes, it is. And I think I like I had to slow down so much. It's such a sort of different thing going from, you know, being very fast paced um academic and doing various other things on top of that to suddenly being at home 
in the country, um, in the cold weather, in the middle of in the middle of winter in Armadale, um, with a baby, and just really feeling as though I was in quite a different world. Um, and then and then spending all of that time with my children and sort of seeing the way the way they observed the world and just the way they could sit. You know, this is a bit of a cliche, I think, but just observing the way they could sit and look at something. Um, like a, I remember my son looking at loved fabrics and he'd sit and he'd look at things and touch them and so on. I thought. You know, if you're going too fast, it can be very hard to observe at that sort of level. And I guess it sort of allowed me to reclaim, if you like, maybe some of that kind of absorbency that the child's imagination has. Do you think that's the heart of the poet, really observing, really looking at things? Yeah, I think that it might be. And I wonder whether perfecting that, that you, you have to perfect the craft at the same time as perfecting that sort of, that you know, the inner eye or the, that kind of observation. Um, I suspect when I was a bit younger, when most of my poems were about, um, you know, and this is a very fine topic of course, but most of my poems would have been pretty much based around what romantic difficulties were going on in my life at that time. That was probably my dominant subject. Um, and just like supposed to be able to move, to be able to shift that self-regard a little bit so that you can observe better things that are going on around you. I think maybe for me that's been a really productive shift. Mm. And being a mother, of course, necessitates that to some degree. Yes, and I suppose moving away from that academic world, maybe, and the, the slow slowness, I suppose, of creativity. Yes, yeah, I think that's, I think that's so. Um, I mean, having said that, I feel I had a wonderful, wonderful private apprenticeship. I had the most, I had an absolutely dream run at university, and then um, to, to have the opportunity to do a PhD. In literature, was just, just I can see the way all of that has led to, um, you know, improving my my work as a writer. Um, so I, I sometimes I, I do think I hear people talk, talking about writers. Um, in fact, I saw an article talking about somebody just recently, and saying uh, that this this particular poet had finished a PhD. And isn't it fortunate that she's not going into academia because that would of course stifle all creativity and so on. Well. In my experience, having a salary is also a very nice thing, um, as compared with um, with not. Um, and I don't think that being an academic um, and teaching literature and talking about poetry is, in fact, you know, is, is the worst thing in the world you could do as a poet. Mm. In fact, I think you know, reading is uh, maybe significantly undervalued um, in some cases. Yes. Do Do you think there's a um tendency, at least in our nation, to marginalise poetry at all, or see it as a kind of um elitist art or you know something that maybe is a, is harder yes I, I find this really paradoxical um, I, my, my first sort of thoughts on this um, were generated when I was working as a poetry editor for a, um, a journal called Figaro now now defunct um, and I was absolutely overwhelmed to discover that we were having hundreds and hundreds of submissions every week from all over the country for this little tiny journal um, and some of them were from you know, big name established poets, and others were, you know, emerging poets of every of every stripe. Um, and 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 then and then sort of line that up next to um, some academic work that I've been doing on elegy. And and just my observation that when these big things happen to people, big things happen in people's lives, often they turn to poetry or they look to poetry for some kind of solace or whatever. So all of that kind of there's a kind of popularity to poetry that's juxtaposed with this sense of it as being an elite art 
which I don't think it has to be. And I think there's, there's definitely work to be done trying to bridge those two things and to sort of harness some of that passion in readers, that impulse in readers towards poetry, um, and, and to find ways of getting them into reading it. Because, yes, there is at the moment a problem with um, selling poetry. Mm. Although there, there seems to me to be some connection, at least, between visual mediums, which are so popular, like film, and you've written about film, theatre, mm. and poetry. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the negative cutter. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. And that was a wonderful project that the Red Room Company in Sydney did, um, the Poetry Picture Show, where they had, I think, 10 poets um, writing on that theme, you can do anything you like. Um, and I got I got sort of caught up in the idea of the language of film editing, which is which is really fascinating. But yes, I think that I mean, poetry and poetry has a wonderful capacity to crystallise um, the emotional and and as you say the image. Um, and we have we do have a wonderful strong tradition in Australia of beautiful lyric poetry, um, and and poetry that that can capture um, just you know in the same way that a film um, shot can, I guess. Hmm. Now we've we've got two minutes left, so I'd, I'd just love to hear what you're working on now. Um, yes, well, I'm, I've become um, strangely obsessed with another um, strange man. I mean, this is just really quite weird for me for somebody who's never really written about men at all, and suddenly to have had the Oppenheimer obsession. Um, and I discovered the story of a, a sailor called Donald Crowhurst who who was lost at sea. Um, it's a it's a kind of a long and complicated and quite tragic story. Um, and where he'd staked all of his family's fortunes on going to sea and winning this prize to be the first um, non-stop around the world sailor. And he, and he went off to sea in a faulty boat and, and then had to deal with that and so on. Um, I became really fascinated with that story as some kind of a metaphor for what it is to do with human beings and how we set our course and, and then we have to change things. So I'm kind of obsessed with that at the moment, but I'm also writing a lot about the body. Um, I'm still fascinated by Everything that happens the way you know a child is conceived and then suddenly you know a few years later it's walking around in the world with strong opinions and completely completely itself. Um, so I'm quite fascinated with the body. Oh, it's wonderful. We'll look forward to all of that. And that's all we have time for today. Um, our next guest is Mark Coker, who's the founder of Smashwords.com, and uh, he'll be talking to us about the future of reading. So, uh, Tune in for that. Thanks so much for your time, Felicity. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate being on the show. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.